Good morning, Redemption. My name is Warren Williams, one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be with you as we are continuing on our series in Advent, looking at Mary's beautiful song, The Magnificat. And what I wanted to tell you guys, I wanted to start off by confessing something to y'all. And what I wanted to confess to y'all is that before I moved to Arizona, I absolutely hated this place. <laughs> it had nothing to do with anything I had heard on the news. It had nothing to do with me visiting here. I'd never been here. If I visited here during the summer, I'd probably never want to come back. But that's a different story. It had nothing to do with that. It has something to do with Arizona actually being associated with one of the worst memories of my childhood. Right? A memory where I actually cried myself to sleep numerous nights in a row. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about my beef with Arizona. <laughs> so the year was 2001. I was 11 years old. You guys are going to have, I don't have to preach the Magnificat towards y'all this morning, man. <laughs> the year was 2001. I was 11 years old and my beloved New York Yankees were on their way to their fourth World Series championship in a row. Right? And this was going to be, this was a different year. Right? You remember that year, the 9-11 attacks happened, and a lot of that tragedy was centered in New York, right? And so there was a sense that the Yankees' victory was not even just a victory for the city, it was a victory for the world. And everything looked good, right? If you remember that series, the Yankees were, were crushing it. There were all these like beautiful come from behind wins and everything like that. And it looked like they were coming back here. They were up. They were about to seal the deal. And then this guy showed up, man. Luis Gonzalez. I can't even believe I'm saying his name in church. Luis Gonzalez comes and he dethrones the Yankees by the humble means of a pop-up, pop fly ball over the infield, right? And the big bad Yankees who have all the years and experience and the firepower and all the things, right, that would lead one to think, hey, this is going to be an easy win, right? They're dethroned by a team who was only around for like four years at that time. And what you see in that picture actually is a picture of reversal. Because you see number 42 there is Mariano Rivera. He's one of the greatest closers, if not the greatest closer of all time. And, you know, he's been in this situation before. He has all the playoff success and experience and et cetera, et cetera. And in that picture, though, again, he's dethroned. The Yankees are dethroned by these young, scrappy Diamondbacks. It's a picture of reversal. And what we're going to see as we dive in this morning into the actions of God is that reversal is not just something that happens on the baseball diamond. That within the Magnificat, Mary celebrates the God of reversal. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the actions of God. What does this reversal look like? And then we're going to talk about how we can be people of reversal. And, you know, to end that story, I'm, I, my feelings around Arizona have been reversed. I love it. It's all good. I'm here. All good. And so let's dive into that. We're going to be talking about the actions of God. But before we do that, let's pray. God, uh, we are so grateful, Lord, that Advent celebrates the fact that you are with us. You've come. 
God, and there's just so much hope. Our hope is, is tied into the fact that you are the God that's present among us. And so even now, Lord, uh, may your spirit be moving as your word is preached, Lord. Um, God, that uh, hearts, that our minds would just be focused to what you would have us to receive this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. And so uh, we're gonna really going to be honing in on Luke 1 and verses 51 through 53 is where we're going to really be focused. And so I'll read um, that portion of it, and then we could, uh, we'll, we'll dive into some of the different parts. So it says, he has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So there are many actions of reversal within that portion of the Magnificat. And the first one we're going to hone in on is God's action of exalting the humble. So Mary sings about the God who lifts the lowly. And when Mary's singing, she's not just pulling these lyrics out of her head, right? She's not just coming up with these bars on her own, right? Mary looks at Scripture and she sees that over and over, time and time again, you see God's direction towards the burden, the broken, the poor, the refugee, the sojourner, that this is a common pattern that you see throughout Scripture. And so Mary zooms out and she sees that. She's singing in, uh, about the faithfulness of the God who the Psalms describes, that he sits high on his throne, and but, but it still gets close enough to see and regard the lowly. And so she sees herself as a part of this story in the ways that God has moved on her behalf, right? God's action of moving towards the lowly has continued in her own story. I mean, we're, it's week three of the Magnificat now. We've been talking about it. And I hope by now that we've come to some understanding to see where Mary was at while she was singing this song. Right? Mary's not singing this song from a throne room. She's singing it as a poor, pregnant, unmarried woman. And many of those circumstances that she found herself in would have her be regarded amongst the lowly in her day. And if we're being honest, even today, right, those many, as we talk about at-risk youth, many women who find themselves in that same spot find themselves in a vulnerable position. But what we don't see in the Magnificat is Mary's not grieving her position. She's not grieving or lamenting her spot in life right now. She's celebrating it because she knows that God's moved towards her, that God has seen her. And when God sees the lowly, he just doesn't see them with like sad eyes, like, oh, I'm so sorry. He sees them and he moves towards them in his compassion. I mean, con let's consider the scene where this song is being sung. So you have Mary and you have a, she's singing to her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the wife of the high priest. I think anyone of their day would have thought, well, if God's going to send his son, he's going to choose Elizabeth, right? He's going to send, send his son through the wife of the high priest. Duh. But actually what was happening there is the baby that's in Elizabeth's womb would be the one that would prepare the way and point to the baby that was in Mary's womb. Right? You even see there a picture of the high priesthood, what it was designed to do is to point to Jesus. Right? And what we, we always have to remember, right, when we talk about God, the script, Bible says this very clearly, God's ways are not like our ways, right? 
right? While we may be always looking to, to protect ourselves, right? If we, were, if we had to send our children to a family, maybe if we were in the spot of God and we had to send our son, maybe we would uh, maybe pick a family like Elon Musk or something, right? And then we have a baby that's like JX35A22 or something. <laughs> But God's ways are not like our, our ways, right? God's power is perfected in weakness. God moves towards the lowly. He moves towards them in compassion. He sees them and he acts on their behalf. He gives them his presence. And, you know, I think I was, I was reminded of this, of this picture of God's abiding presence with the lowly um, through the recent passing of one of my childhood friends. So one of my childhood friends, uh, you know, a guy that I, I, uh, I walked home from school with every day, known each other since kindergarten, he passed away in just a terrible, tragic incident in September. And I wish I could say that that was the worst of it, but his older brother passed away in a completely separate tragic incident about a month earlier. The only two boys of, a, of, of their parents gone in a month's time. And so the time came for my friend Corey's funeral. And, you know, I was just thinking to myself, we were watching, and I was like, there, there's no way his parents are gonna be able to muster up any words. Not possible. Like, you couldn't get me to say five words as a parent in that situation. But the time came, and his parents walked up front, standing in front of their son's lifeless body, the second one, second time they've done that in a month. And they stood there, and they gave their remarks, you know, thanked everyone. But the thing that I will never forget for the rest of my life is what they ended their time with saying. Because they ended their time by saying that they thanked God for everything. They thanked God for everything. And I know some of you, when you hear that, you're like, well, you know, they're just trying to make everyone feel better, right? They're trying to save face. But if you were there or you watched them speak, what you would see there is two people, right, who weren't concerned with saving face, but had experienced the face of the Lord shining on them. There were two people, I'm sure, that they had their moments of weeping and wailing and asking why. But in that moment, they had, there were two people that were convicted and knew and decided that God was good no matter the circumstances. And over the, the, the Thanksgiving holiday, my wife and I, uh, my family, we went to New York and we had an opportunity to actually spend some time with Corey's parents. And we sat there. Um, and, you know, I told her just how much her words encouraged me, how much they strengthened my faith, and, um, yeah, just, just how, uh, how much we loved her. I know many of you guys were praying for her, and I just let her know that. And what she told me is, Warren, I am holding on to the promises of God. I'm holding on to the promises of Jesus because it's all we have. And as you were sitting in that house, there was a peace that was filling that house. That's the peace that Jesus promise he would give, the peace that the world cannot understand, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that there was a sense that the God had made his abode in that home in the Bronx, 
as he abided with them. And so what I want you to hear today, if you're here and you find yourself among the lowly, among the poor, the hurting, the broken, the wounded, find yourself like Corey's parents. What I want you to know is that you too can rejoice in the God of Christmas who sees you and moves in compassion towards you. You see, this idea of of being lowly, of, of, bro- of being broken, of struggling. It's not something that is foreign to me. Right? In my own story, I've been at risk youth. <laughs> right? I've struggled. I've had to struggle with numerous things throughout my life. I've been in communities. I lived in communities where people were just generally struggling. And I think when you think about struggling in itself, um, it's not something that's necessarily unique to human beings, right? You can watch a nature documentary, you'll see birds struggling, animals struggling, all, everyone's struggling, right? <laughs> but the difference is, as human beings, is we have that double burden of awareness that we're struggling, right? We have that consciousness when we zoom out our, on our lives and look at it and just see things not going the way that we think they should. And I think what adds to that burden, that weight, is the feeling that, hey, am I invisible? Am I alone in this? Is anyone coming to help me? Do I exist? Can be often the feeling that you're experiencing when you're in that low state. Does anyone see me? Like everyone's doing well financially. Everyone's got their job situation all set up and I can't keep a job. I have to keep asking people for things, right? Everyone has their family for Christmas over and it seems like such a joyous time, but my family's a mess. And then there's the the comparing of yourself to everyone else and just seeing yourself magnifying your problems to say, "Am, am I all alone in this? Does anyone see me? And what I want to say, if you're asking yourself that question here today, what I want you to hear is the resounding yes of God. Yes, he sees you. And not only only can God see you, but he gets to where you are. And I think it's important for us to know that about God, because if God can't get to us, if he can't get to our pain, our longing, our griefs, our low estate, you find yourself there, If he can't get there, then his power means very little to us. But the God of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us, right? And in Christmas, we celebrate the fact that Jesus put on flesh, that God came. He lived a low life. He was poor. He had heartbreak. He had grief. He had wounds. He had friends die. He was betrayed. He experienced the lowness of life. And that's the God that's interceding for you. That's the God who can rightly identify with you because his very heart is gentle and lowly. He sees you and he gets you what you need. And in our Advent actions, as the different focuses that we look at each week or that we're we're, we're participating in each week, it helps us as a church, right, to reflect the, God, the movement of God and compassion towards the lowly so that we could be a community that reflects the God who lifts 
the lowly. But you see, God's action towards the lowly is not the only action that Mary sings about in the Magnificat. No, there's also God's action towards the proud. In verse 51 and 52, it reads, he has shown strength with his arm and he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their, their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And what Mary's celebrating there is the God who lowers the lifted. And not only lifts the lowly, but he also lowers the lifted. And there's a sense there of God's justice coming, right? God's opposition towards the proud. And I think to give that a definition, um, we could say that the, the, the proud of our world are those who have this exaggerated view of themselves and an elevated view of their accomplishments, abilities, possessions, and so forth. And again, Mary's song, Mary's, the Magnificat, is not just Mary pulling lines out of her head, right? right this is a, a theme you see in scripture of God opposing, resisting, bringing judgment on those who have elevated themselves against him. Those who have made their, their confidence in life, their possessions, their abilities, their power. And what Mary is celebrating is that this story, this pattern continues. And at the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God brings good news to the lowly and bad news to the proud. The kingdom of God comes and it confronts every single other kingdom. You see, there are many in Jesus's day who his kingdom is gonna come against and who will ultimately end up being brought down. Think about Rome, right? Rome, Caesar, people who have basically set themselves up or have at or, or, or commanded people to, to, to call them Lord, right? They've set themselves up as God-like figures. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 Caesar, you aren't Lord, I am. You have the, the kingdom of the Pharisees, right? The kingdom of the religious leaders of their day who were controlling the people through greed, Right, for their, own, for, for, for their own influence, their own position, for their own power. Right, they, were, they were kind of showing this fake sense of being all good on the outside, but inside they were corrupted by their control, by their greed. The kingdom of God says, no, God is coming to transform lives from the inside out. And what I want us to get here is it could be, because we need to be clear. When we're, when we're in passages of scripture like this and we're kind of reading through it. What we, what we got to get is that the problem with Caesar or the high priests or some of these other people who may be brought down is not their job titles. Right? It's not because they have the job title of Caesar or they have the job title of high priest or even necessarily the possessions they have. The problem is they had gotten to a point where they felt that they needed to protect these things at all costs where they had gotten to a point where instead of possessing these things, instead of possessing power, possessing a position, they had allowed those things to possess them. They were corrupted by their power. And you know what, guys, if I'm being honest, when I get to parts like this in the Bible, I'm like, yeah, go get them, God. Go get them. Right? I, I get excited when I read about God bringing down the mighty. 
out of all his actions of what he's going to do against the proud. You know, I often, when I'm reading the Bible, it's very easy for me to, to place myself with the good guys. But the reality is I probably have more in common with the Roman citizen than I do with Mary. I've heard it said that if you're reading the Bible and you start to kind of start to feel self-righteous, you're probably misreading it. And I don't think anything reminds me of where I stand in relation to this passage. Um, nothing reminds me more than when I look at my DoorDash account. When I look at my DoorDash account and I look and I see that recently, this is really Confession Sunday, here we go. Recently, I spent $20 on a chicken kebab sandwich. 20 bucks, that something that probably, I don't know if I went to the store, maybe 10 bucks, you know, to put that all together. Spent 20 bucks on it. And yes, I tipped my dasher well, make sure you do that, please. All right, but I paid for the comfort that DoorDash provided there. If Mary was standing there, she'd be, her mind would be blown for a number of reasons, right? First, she'd be like, what is that? Like, <laughs> but even the sense that I'm just laying there, laid back, yeah, chicken kebab, please. And it arrives at my door. I don't even have to say anything. If King Herod saw that, he'd probably be praying the Magnificat against me. I, if, I, if I'm being, I, I saw something yesterday on Twitter that said, if you have like over $4,000 to your name, that you're, I think you're wealthier than 50% of the world's population. But I'm willing to spend what many in our world probably don't even make in a day on a sandwich because I like the comfort it provides. But I like it because the comfort it provides. And comfort in itself is not a bad thing. My comfort is not inherently a bad thing, but for being honest, sometimes it can come at the expense and burdens of others, right? It can become another kingdom that we're seeking like, to protect and keep at all costs. And whether it be the striving towards comfort or status or power, followers, whatever it is, the God of Christmas and his kingdom confronts all of our self-interested and self-advancing kingdoms. Church, do we feel that threat of Christmas? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I'm being honest, when I've seen, you know, we, 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 I, we've all experienced God's actions towards like bringing down the the politician, the celebrity of our day. And, you know, I don't know about you, but me often when I see that, I'm like, huh, serves them right. Right, in my heart of hearts, when I'm being honest, I, I, I actually look at them and say, good, God, I'm glad that you judged them. But if we're being honest, if we're really being believers, we're called to reflect in our own hearts, right? And can we be honest and say some of the same sin, the pride that leads to many of those sins that ultimately bring us down? that those sins that are out there are in us as well. Can we be honest about that? Whether it's the kingdom of comfort or any kingdom that, you know, like a, a kingdom that, uh, that's an actual evil regi regime that forces refugee families to, to flee 
for their lives and tear all the kingdoms. They're coming down. There's only one that's going to stand for all of eternity. And so what do we want to do? Who do we want to be? We want to be people who go bankrupt. I saw Jason twitching his seat. He was like, whoa, wait a second there, man. <laughs> I don't mean bankrupt financially. Right? But I want to be, I mean, people who, the, the bankrupt of this world are the people who know themselves to be so. And so they turn to God for their protector, their deliverance, their all in all. Those are the kind of people we want to be. We want to be people who bankrupt ourselves of pride. Anything that fills us to the point where God becomes an afterthought in our lives. And as we talk about this, we don't, we're not talking about a God who this concept was foreign to. Jesus, what did he do? He became poor so that we could become rich. He bankrupted himself so that he could fill us with the actual good things of eternity. But if we're too full with our own selves, how are we going to receive it? Why Jesus is the, the God who comes in Christmas, right, who bankrupted himself of even pursuing his glory, did everything for the Father's will and to the Father's name, for his glory. And what Jesus reminds us is uh, the story that this is, this is, this is who God is. Right then in the Bible, the, the, the God of the Bible is a God who he humbles himself so much that he stoops low to be present with sinners like you and I. This is the God of Scripture. If he if the God of the universe is willing to do that, to go to those extremes, how can we think to elevate ourselves against him? The God that stoops so low to send his son to be born in the place where cows eat from. Think about that. Bankruptcy. Because our confidence is not in our accounts, our accomplishments, all these different things that we set up around ourselves to make us feel more confident and protected and ultimately try to justify ourselves for other people. Confidence is in none of that. Our confidence is in the actions of God. Past, present, future actions of God. And so we talked a lot today about what God is doing, right? That God's on the move. He's acting. He's lifting the lowly, lowering the lifted. What are we supposed to do? Should we stand back and cheer on God like, go ahead, God, do your thing. So amazing. No. Right? The kingdom doesn't have any spectators. Right? We are participants, we are called to be the people of reversal, the people of God's reversal. You see, being a part of the kingdom of God means that we participate in God's actions in all areas of our lives. It's interesting. The, the Magnificat, right? It's a song from a poor teenage mom from months ago. Um, months ago, please. <laughs> centuries ago, right? But yet, it poses such a threat to so many different world governments, right? So many. Like, I think even at this moment, five countries have banned the Magnificat from being recited in, in public. Why is that? I think because it testifies to the power of the God of reversal. That when God starts to move, people get and feel threatened. 
right? And it testifies to the power of the God that we worship, that when we become people of reversal, we start to flip the world all upside down. And the flipping of the world upside down is not something that's a new concept to believers. If you read in the, books, the book of Acts, right, the people who opposed the early Christians, you know what they said about them? Those people are flipping the world upside down. I don't think they knew how right they were. You see, the flipping of the world, the reversal that God is bringing is not the knocking things out of their proper place. No, he's putting things in their proper place. He's setting the world right. They didn't know how right they were. These people flipping the world upside down, that's exactly the kingdom that followers of Jesus pledge their loyalty to, to. The upside down kingdom. A kingdom where the way up is the way down. A kingdom where we put aside our own kingdoms and our own crowns so that we could pick up a cross. A kingdom where greatness is not measured by how much power you've amassed for yourself, how many possessions you have. The greatness is measured by how much, of, how much of a servant you are, how much you're willing to sacrificially love your neighbors to the glory of God. You know, my, my second worst baseball memory, I know, I know uh, the baseball people in, in here, they're loving this. All five of us, we're loving this, I know. <laughs> my second worst baseball memory is from the year 2004. And it was a, another year with the Yankees, you know, were steamrolling their way through the playoffs. And they got to the Boston Red Sox. Boston Red Sox, we've been beating them up for many, many years, right? There, there was that time, you know, it, it was at the time they, there was this curse of the Bambino that people would ascribe to the Red Sox where they traded Babe Ruth. And since then, they hadn't won a World Series. If you don't know who Babe Ruth is, I don't know. I can't help you. Um, <laughs> But ever since then, they hadn't won a World Series, right? And the Yankees were up big. They were about to beat them. They're up 3-1. And at that point, the Red Sox come back. They beat the Yankees, and they go on to win the World Series. First time in 80-something years. And I don't think Red Sox nation has given the world much of anything that's good. Mostly pain, brokenness, tears, all that sort of stuff. But something good that came out of that year was the mantra of the team. Because the, the mantra of the team that year, of the fans, of the, the, the things, the, the words that they were wearing on their shirt, it said, reverse the curse. Reverse the curse. And I think as believers, as followers of Jesus, followers of the God, right, who is out to reverse the curse as far as it's found, that's a good mantra for us. See, we want to be people who follow the God of Christmas, who is out to bring reversal. And we are called to join into the work of God, reversing the curse as far as it's found. And I think often when we think about the brokenness of our world, right, some of the issues just seem so big. You're like, I can't do anything about that. It's always going to be like that, right? Like this part, this, this, this problem is just too big for anyone to change, right? But 
God may not be calling you to fix the biggest things, but he's calling you to do something. When I think about even the people who participate in our prayer and action groups, right? They're taking these big issues in our city. They're coming together. They're praying fervently, right? Because everything we do, we want to make sure it's being done by the guidance and will and in the will of, of God. So they're praying fervently, and then they're diving in to the issue and figuring out actual tangible ways, not tweetable ways, tangible ways to dive in, to be people of reversal, to people affected by these, these, these big issues. People of reversal. Think about what we heard today, Juan Chavez, AZ Reach. Right? They are people, they, they, are, they are diving in and being people of reversal and helping to reverse the curse of brokenness, of abuse, of poverty, that often plagues inner city youth. Right? And they're doing it with the, uh, with the prayerfulness, you know, that God sees these kids, right, who may come from tough, tough circumstances, but there are opportunities for his reversal in their lives. People of reversal. I even think about, you know, and maybe, maybe that all seems so big. It's like, I don't have the time to volunteer for that. It just that seems like too much. I, I even think about something I've heard that families do in our church that I'm like, wow, that's cool. Um, families doing things in their front yards. And I know that seems like, well, what's the big deal there? But if you live here, you understand why that would be a big deal. Why? Right? Because a lot of us, when we go to our homes, we just drive into our garages or drive into our driveways and the, the garage is like right there next to the door and there is no connection that we have with our actual physical neighbors. Right? So people doing things in their front yards, it gives an opportunity right, to reverse that curse of separation that we often even have from our physical neighbors. Right? How can we actually love the people around, them if, around us if we don't even know them, we don't see them? People of reversal. I think about uh, a new friend I have. His name is Chuck. And I met him playing basketball um, at Tumbleweed Rec Center in Chandler. And Chuck, when he first told me what, what he did, he was, he's retired now. But when he first told me what he did, he, he whispered to me. He was like, hey, Warren, I was a cop. And I was like, don't worry, Chuck. I'm a pastor. Right, and the, the, the reason why he was like whispering, because he knows there's a lot of like negative stuff around police these days, right? But what I've seen Chuck do in his retirement is Chuck, he's familiar with the criminal justice system, um, and, and, and what he's done in his retirement is seek out intentional ways to connect with incarcerated people. Right, he goes there, he meets with them, talks to them, he cares for their family, he's like serves as a bridge between the, 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 the families and the incarcerated people. And Chuck talked about this. He said, I do this because when people get incarcerated, they often feel like they've just been forgotten about. Right? And I know God sees them. And I want to be a part of them being seen. Right? I, want, I know I may not be able to go to Washington and pass a criminal justice reform bill, but my life can be that. People of reversal. Where is God calling you to be a person of reversal? Your home, classroom, your family, your work. Where is God calling you to be that person of reversal? You know, one of my favorite preachers used to say this often in his sermons. He said, 
I'm quoting Jesus, that Jesus said that apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he would add, but we can be sure that if we do nothing, it'll be apart from him. God is calling us to action, church. He's calling us to be the, the, the instruments of his reversal in our broken world. See, church, in Advent, uh, what we're celebrating is that we, or who we want to be as a church, we want to be a people of prayer and action in response to our God who hears our prayers and takes action. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, uh, we come to you, Lord, um, as your people gathered together, Lord. God, and we ask, Lord, that as we talk about all that you're doing, Lord, that one, we would zoom out, God, and just magnify the fact that we serve a God who is active, who's with us, God, who is not far off, distant, looking, at the, looking from the sidelines, but with us in the day-to-day of life, Lord. That your present, presence is with your people, God. And I pray, Lord, that as we talk about being people of reversal, where we know we're not just called to do random acts of good things, Lord. We are called to lay down our lives, God. We are called to love like you love, Lord, to see people like you see them, God, and to allow our lives to just testify to your glory, God, to your reversal. So, Lord, allow us to be those people as we go into this week, Lord, um, God, and allow us to remember, Lord, that When we pray, you hear us, Lord. You take action. Help us to be those people. In your name, amen.